The worship theme for January, as you might have guessed by now, is evil. What a good way to start the new year, right? This is just my way of uh, putting a shout-out to our Calvinist roots, which we try to get out of, but still haven't succeeded, obviously. But this month, we will be taking the opportunity, uh, especially in worship, both this Sunday and on the 22nd, to unpack this rather complex and troublesome topic a little bit. Uh, Today I'll be focusing more on the problems of evil, and on the 22nd I will try to present a theology, a Unitarian Universalist theology of evil. Well, evil is not an easy topic for us uh, Unitarian Universalists, especially because we try to focus on the essential goodness of human nature. But it is a topic that we must wrestle with. Because how we address the problems of evil is core to our worldview and to our own self-view. How do we deal with the existence of evil in the world and more importantly, in our own hearts. So it might help us to make some order of evil first. You see, ethicists have traditionally divided evil into three categories. The first they call metaphysical evil, which is the assertion that the created world is simply imperfect. Now, theodicy is that branch of theology that tries to defend a perfect God against charges of culpability in evil. And the word theodicy itself means judgment of God. Now, the second category ethicists call natural evil, that which arises from disasters like hurricanes, floods, earthquakes, famines, and diseases. Now this derives from the early thinkers of the Greco-Roman world who believed that where there is suffering, there is guilt. And guilt is evil. So hurricanes, tsunamis, and other natural disasters that tend to kill people are not in and of themselves evil. It is the effects of these events on human beings, even though Pat Robertson might disagree with me on that, that are judged to be evil. You know, I'm sure you remember his various pronouncements over the years, especially the more recent one after the earthquake in Haiti. You know, he attributed that to people's fault that because they were inherently evil, that it hit them. And he said the same after Katrina, and so on. I digress. But evil as a physical concept requires human evaluation of a behavior and its effect on humans. Similarly, diseases cannot be inherently evil. By causing humans to sneeze, cough, vomit, or have diarrhea, bacteria successfully proliferate 
as their human hosts, we may label the effects of a disease as evil. But the disease itself has no moral existence. So the next time you have one of these, I hope you will carry that perspective into that and not proceed to judge your disease. Now, ethicists call the third kind of evil moral evil. Now, moral evil is the deliberate act of inflicting suffering, such as war, a terrorist attack, theft, murder, rape, and lying. This is the category of evil that most draws our attention because we, as Unitarian Universalists, accept and celebrate free will. You know, that principle, the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We acknowledge that we must also accept the responsibility for choices poorly or malevolently made. Thus, we do not generally see evil as a force outside of ourselves, but as coming from within. Now, there are many different experiences of moral evil in human life that have been pointed out by experts in psychiatry, sociology, politics, business, and so on. M. Scott Peck who I'm sure you're all familiar with, he passed away in 2005, discusses evil in his book, People of the Lie, The Hope for Healing Human Evil. In this book, he gives some identifying characteristics for evil persons. An evil person, he says, projects his or her evils and sins onto others and tries to remove them from others. An evil person maintains a high level of respectability and lies incessantly in order to do so, is consistent in his or her sins and transgressions. Evil persons are characterized not so much by the magnitude of their sins, but by their consistency. And an evil person is unable to think from other people's viewpoints. My God, your list just got bigger, didn't it? So, according to Peck, evil is an extreme form of character disorder. Now, in the realm of business, evil refers to unfair business practices. The most widely agreed on unfair practices are sweatshops and monopolies. But recently, the term evil has been applied much more broadly, especially in technology and intellectual property industries. One of the slogans of Google is, don't be evil, in response to much criticized technology companies such as Microsoft. The economist David Corton has argued that industrial corporations indulge and practice evil when they engage in business practices that damage the environment, that suppress workers' rights, or exploit the powerless. 
Now these days, the term systemic evil is heard quite often. It refers to moral evil committed by an organization or a social institution or system. An organization or a social institution or system usually has its own culture, and its members tend to be psychologically very influenced by it. And if the culture is dominated by any unhealthy ideologies or thoughts, such as totalitarianism, materialism, classism, racism, sexism, homophobia, ageism, ableism, and all the other isms, then the organization or social institution as a whole is found to be collectively committing systemic evil. And its members are consciously or unconsciously participating in that evil. Then, of course, there is that myth of pure, unadulterated evil, which is the belief that evil exists separately from individuals, Satan, or that evil exists within people as something like what we tend to think of as an evil force, Darth Vader, driving them to perform evil acts. Now, I don't much care for this particular view as I don't believe there is a supernatural force out there that operates outside the realm of known laws of nature and human behavior that one can call evil. Now, that's the humanist in me speaking. We don't get anywhere by calling someone or something evil because it leads to no greater understanding, no quantifiable criteria by which we may distinguish between something or someone that is evil or not evil or shades of evil in between. Similarly, evil is not a fixed entity or presence. It is not a thing. And then there is the banality of evil, the most common and the most insidious of evils that political theorist Hannah Arendt used to describe Adolf Eichmann on trial in Jerusalem. Arendt's term refers in part to ordinary factors that together can add up to an evil act. You see, there were tens of thousands of ordinary Germans who were complicit in the Holocaust. Now, many of them could not be charged with war crimes later because they had just been doing their jobs, opening the doors to the trains, letting people get in in lines, getting them off the trains, getting them into the trucks, driving the trucks, opening the gates to the concentration camps, finding them quarters to stay, monitoring them each day, and so on and so on. You get the picture. Just following orders, mechanically and unquestioningly, or they had been responsible for only a tiny link in the chain. But cumulatively, it still led to undeservable harm, the killing of six million Jews. 
And that's only one holocaust. There are many, many holocausts. So all of this to say that evil is not something that's out there. Evil is right here. It is in me. It is in you. It is in this sanctuary. And it has the potential to emerge and manifest itself in our most precious relationships. Remember Oliver Bernstorff? For those who don't know who Oliver Bernstorff is, he was a member, a dear member of our congregation, who proceeded to kill his ex-wife, her partner, and his two children and take his own life a few years ago, which is the most difficult situation that I was alluding to when I was recognizing Linda Stoller. I was shocked. I was completely blown away because I knew this man. I loved this man. I dedicated his children. And I never imagined that one of our own, a fellow Unitarian Universalist, would be capable of something evil of that nature. So my friends, this isn't a hypothetical conversation that I'm trying to have with you at an intellectual level so you can proceed to try and fit it into categories. It is very, very real. It also happens to be a year since those dastardly shootings in Tucson. Remember that? So, it, it kind of recedes into the vast horizons of our memory. And we try to put some distance between us and what is evil. But it sure comes back, comes back and stares us in our faces. Yet, yet as human beings, we are wont to project those qualities in ourselves we do not like outside of ourselves. We create others, the other, the immigrant, that's a great example, who do these evil things, bad leaders and criminals, devils, demons, and satans. But that, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, is the first lie. He says, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his or her own heart? He writes, during the life of any heart, this line keeps changing place. Sometimes it is squeezed one way by exuberant evil, and sometimes it shifts to a love enough space for good to flourish. One and the same human being is, at various stages, under various circumstances, a totally different human being. At times, he or she is close to being a devil, at times to sainthood. But his or her name doesn't change, and to that name we ascribe the whole lot, good and evil. 
end of quote. So denying our own inherent capacity for evil can in itself be seen as a sign of evil. Evil is rooted in the fact that we have the capacity to empathize, but we do not always exercise that capacity. British psychopathologist Simon Baron Cohen, yes, he is the cousin of Sasha Baron Cohen. <laughs> he is. He even quotes Sasha Baron Cohen in his book, calls this phenomenon empathy erosion. Empathy erosion can arise because of bitter resentment or a desire for revenge, retribution, or blind hatred, or a desire to protect. It leads ultimately to treating people as objects instead of subjects, which Cohen says is one of the worst things we can do to another human being to ignore their subjectivity, their thoughts and their feelings and their emotions. So evil, in my dictionary, is anything which denies, diminishes, or destroys life. It is a disordering of our character away from all that is life-giving, life-affirming, life promoting, enhancing towards that which denies, diminishes, and destroys life. It is a dis-ease of the soul. And evil has its origins and terminus in human choice. There can be no scapegoating the devil. The devil made me do it. Our genetic ancestry or the peculiar habits of our parents or circles, social circumstances or cultural norms. Only we humans are responsible for both good and evil. How many of you have read or seen the Harry Potter series? Good, good. Now the second book, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Towards the end of the book and the film, there is Dumbledore having a conversation with Harry Potter who has just managed to save the school and his friends by killing the snake, which he's able to speak to because he has that element in him. And then he has this moment of introspection and real doubt because he is, after all, from the house of Gryffindor, yes. But the snake is from the house of Slytherin. So Harry Potter is worried. Here I am from the house of Gryffindor, but here I am able to understand and know these things which are supposed to be evil. So he goes up to Dumbledore and says, you know, I'm really doubtful whether I belong in this house. I don't want to go into the whole story and mess up in case you haven't read it or seen the movies. It's a good invitation for you to go support Warner Brothers. 
Uh, Dumbledore, hey, come on, ultimately that's what happens. Dumbledore says this. He says, it is our choices, Harry, that show what we truly are far more than our abilities. It is our choices, Harry, that show what we truly are more than our abilities. Evil is choosing to move away from what former Czech president and dissident Václav Havel calls living in truth to living a lie. Evil is being able to see the discrepancy between what is and what ought to be, but choosing not to act upon the imperative that vision implies. And evil is resisting, actively resisting the powerful temptation to be and to do good. You know that temptation. It's not temptation being tempted to do evil. It's the temptation to do good that we actually resist every day of our lives. Because each of us knows how to play the game of dressing up for success. We fulfill the role which is necessary for the ecology of evil to thrive and survive. And this is what Dr. Martin Luther King meant when he said, he who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps to perpetrate it. He who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. So, how do we overcome or even just protect ourselves from evil? Mahatma Gandhi has a good teaching. Living the truth in all ways at all times. This means confronting evil and not being afraid of it. For it is our fear, you see, which gives evil power over us. So we have to be willing to stand up to evil. We have to be willing to speak the truth in love. And we have to be willing to love, not destroy those imprisoned by evil. Now this, of course, none of this is easy. But it's the only thing that works. We cannot, cannot destroy evil by mounting campaigns to jail and kill those who make the evil obvious and explicit. We might delude ourselves, and it may seem to work temporarily, but it always resurfaces. But we might, we just might transform evil if we were to only recognize, first of all, our own complicity in the processes which engender and sustain it. And we will overcome evil when we refuse to play the game or to be silent. And when we make a determined effort to understand evil as a possibility that is awaiting transformation. So may it be.